How will André Louis find satisfaction for the murder of his friend when the law fails him? Raphael Sabatini, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. With us giving away so much free material during this time of the pandemic, we need your help more than ever. We're actually feeling another wave of the virus here in Utah, and things are getting pretty topsy-turvy. Thank you so much for helping us stay afloat. In case you haven't already, feel free to take advantage of our free titles. I get so happy when I see someone has downloaded the free audiobook titles, especially new customers. Anything we can do to help each other during this tricky time we're going through right now. Am I right? I've tried to have something there for everyone from several genres and geared for all ages. Please click on over to our free section and enjoy. There's a link to the free material in the description for this week's episode. App users can hear Sonnet 94 from William Shakespeare in their special features this week. Friday, we'll find out if the Hunchback of Notre Dame wins an independent audiobook award. As of the posting of this episode, I don't know the results. I'll be sure to let you know during next week's episode. A big thank you to Annie from the Join Us in France podcast, who helped with the pronunciations of the French names and phrases for this week's episode. If you're interested in France at all, you should check out her show. It's fantastic. Now for our personal moment. I just have a quick personal moment this week in case you're ever going to make oatmeal scotchies. My loss is your gain. So, if you're following the recipe on the back of the Nestle Tollhouse Morsels Butterscotch Chips package, you need to cream your butter and your sugar together first, then add the eggs. I had to do it twice. Thank you, Scylla, for helping me. Also... The trick to a really nice cookie, apparently, I'm learning all of this. Scylla is a fantastic cook, and she's helping me through, you know, step by step. Once they come out of the oven, let them sit and cool on the actual cookie sheet for two minutes. Then, take them off, let them cool on a cookie rack. And then, cool down the cookie sheet so that you're not putting your cool batter on top of an already hot cookie sheet. And in case you're wondering... Yes, we are re-watching all of The Great British Baking Show in order. And yes, it does hold up. So, that's our personal moment. Use it wisely. Last week, we met our hero, André Louis, a lawyer who was born into the upperish classes and sympathized with them. His friend, Philippe de Villemorin, was a seminary student and was seeking redress of grievances for a poor gamekeeper, Mabe who had been killed for taking a pheasant from a trap on the Marquis de la Tour d'Azir's land. The Marquis had ordered Mabe be shot, and Philippe was seeking some settlement for poor Mabe's widow and children. It seems the injustice in this week's episode strikes home rather sharply. I hope you like it. And now, Scaramouche, Part 2 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini.
Chapter 4 The Heritage It was Monsieur de Villemorin's desire that the matter should be settled out of hand. In this he was at once objective and subjective. A prey to emotions, sadly at conflict with his priestly vocation, he was above all in haste to have done, so that he might resume a frame of mind more proper to it. Also, he feared himself a little, by which I mean that his honour feared his nature. The circumstances of his education, and the goal that for some years now he had kept in view, had robbed him of much of that spirited brutality that is the birthright of the male. He had grown timid and gentle as a woman. Aware of it, he feared that once the heat of his passion was spent, he might betray a dishonouring weakness in the ordeal. Monsieur le Marquis, on his side, was no less eager for an immediate settlement, and since they had Monsieur de Chabrian to act for his cousin, and André Louis to serve as witness for Monsieur de Villemarin, there was nothing to delay them. And so, within a few minutes, all arrangements were concluded, and you behold that sinisterly intentioned little group of four assembled in the afternoon sunshine on the bowling-green behind the inn. They were entirely private, screened more or less from the windows of the house by a ramage of trees, which, if leafless now, was at least dense enough to provide an effective lattice. There were no formalities over measurements of blades or selection of ground. Monsieur le Marquis removed his sword-belt and scabbard, but declined, not considering it worth while for the sake of so negligible an opponent, to divest himself either of his shoes or his coat. Tall, lithe, and athletic, he stood to face the no less tall, but very delicate and frail, Monsieur de Villemorin. The latter also disdained to make any of the usual preparations. Since he recognized that it could avail him nothing to strip, he came on guard fully dressed, two hectic spots above the cheekbones burning on his otherwise grey face. Monsieur de Chabrian, leaning upon a cane, for he had relinquished his sword to Monsieur de Villemorin, looked on with quiet interest. Facing him on the other side of the combatants stood André Louis, the palest of the four, staring from fevered eyes, twisting and untwisting clammy hands. His every instinct was to fling himself between the antagonists, to protest against and frustrate this meeting. That sane impulse was curbed, however, by the consciousness of its futility. To calm him, he clung to the conviction that the issue could not really be very serious. If the obligations of Philippe's honour compelled him to cross swords with the man he had struck, Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir's birth compelled him no less to do no serious hurt to the unfledged lad he had so grievously provoked. Monsieur le Marquis, after all, was a man of honour. He could intend no more than to administer a lesson, sharp, perhaps, but one by which his opponent must live to profit. André-Louis clung obstinately to that for comfort. Steel beat on steel, and the men engaged. The Marquis presented to his opponent the narrow edge of his upright body, his knees slightly flexed and converted into living springs, while Monsieur de Villemarin stood squarely, a full target, his knees wooden. Honour and the spirit of fair play alike cried out against such a match. The encounter was very short, of course. 
In youth, Philippe had received the tutoring in sword-play that was given to every boy born into his station of life, and so he knew at least the rudiments of what was now expected of him. But what could rudiments avail him here? Three disengagers completed the exchanges, and then without any haste the Marquis slid his right foot along the moist turf, his long, graceful body extending itself in a lunge that went under Monsieur de Vilmorin's clumsy guard, and with the utmost deliberation he drove his blade through the young man's vitals. André-Louis sprang forward just in time to catch his friend's body under the armpits as it sank. Then, his own legs bending beneath the weight of it, he went down with his burden until he was kneeling on the damp turf. Philippe's limp head lay against André-Louis's left shoulder. Philippe's relaxed arms trailed at his sides. The blood welled and bubbled from the ghastly wound to saturate the poor lad's garments. With white face and twitching lips, André-Louis looked up at Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, who stood surveying his work with a countenance of grave but remorseless interest. "'You have killed him!' cried André-Louis. "'Of course.' The Marquis ran a lace handkerchief along his blade to wipe it. As he let the dainty fabric fall, he explained himself. He had, as I told him, a too dangerous gift of eloquence. And he turned away, leaving completest understanding with André-Louis. Still supporting the limp, draining body, the young man called to him. "'Come back, you cowardly murderer, and make yourself quite safe by killing me, too!' The Marquis half-turned, his face dark with anger. Then Monsieur de Chabrian set a restraining hand upon his arm. Although a party threw out to the deed, the Chevalier was a little appalled now that it was done. He had not the high stomach of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, and he was a good deal younger. "'Come away,' he said. "'The lad is raving. They were friends.' "'You heard what he said?' quoth the Marquis. "'Nor can he, or you, or any man, deny it,' flung back André-Louis. "'Yourself, monsieur, you made confession when you gave me now the reason why you killed him.' You did it because you feared him. If that were true, what, then? asked the great gentleman. Do you ask? Do you understand of life and humanity nothing but how to wear a coat and dress your hair? Oh, yes, and to handle weapons against boys and priests. Have you no mind to think, no soul into which you can turn its vision? Must you be told that it is a coward's part to kill the thing he fears, and doubly a coward's part to kill in this way? Had you stabbed him in the back with a knife, you would have shown the courage of your vileness. It would have been a vileness undisguised, but you feared the consequences of that, powerful as you are, and so you shelter your cowardice under the pretext of a duel. The Marquis shook off his cousin's hand and took a step forward, holding now his sword like a whip. But again the chevalier caught and held him. Now, now, Gervais, let be, in God's name. Let him come, monsieur, raved André-Louis, his voice thick and concentrated. Let him complete his coward's work on me, and thus make himself safe 
from a coward's wages. Monsieur de Chabrian let his cousin go. He came white to the lips, his eyes glaring at the lad who so recklessly insulted him. And then he checked. It may be that he remembered suddenly the relationship in which this young man was popularly believed to stand to the Seigneur de Gavriac, and the well-known affection in which the Seigneur held him. And so he may have realized that if he pushed this matter further, he might find himself upon the horns of a dilemma. He would be confronted with the alternatives of shedding more blood, and so embroiling himself with the Lord of Gavriac at a time when that gentleman's friendship was of the first importance to him or else of withdrawing with such hurt to his dignity as must impair his authority in the countryside hereafter. Be it so or otherwise, the fact remains that he stopped short. Then, with an incoherent ejaculation, between anger and contempt, he tossed his arms, turned on his heel, and strode off quickly with his cousin. When the landlord and his people came, they found André-Louis, his arms about the body of his dead friend, murmuring passionately into the deaf ear that rested almost against his lips. Philippe! Speak to me, Philippe! Philippe! Don't you hear me? Oh, God of heaven! Philippe! At a glance they saw that here neither priest nor doctor could avail. The cheek that lay against André-Louise was leaden-hued. The half-open eyes were glazed, and there was a little froth of blood upon the vacuously parted lips. Half-blinded by tears, André-Louis stumbled after them when they bore the body into the inn. Upstairs in the little room to which they conveyed it, he knelt by the bed, and holding the dead man's hand in both his own, he swore to him out of his impotent rage that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir should pay a bitter price for this. "'It was your eloquence he feared, Philippe,' he said. "'Then if I can get no justice for this deed, at least it shall be fruitless to him. The thing he feared in you he shall fear in me. He feared that men might be swayed by your eloquence to the undoing of such things as himself.' Men shall be swayed by it still, for your eloquence and your arguments shall be my heritage from you. I will make them my own. It matters nothing that I do not believe in your gospel of freedom. I know it, every word of it. That is all that matters to our purpose, yours and mine. If all else fails, your thoughts shall find expression in my living tongue. Thus at least... We shall have frustrated his vile aim to still the voice he feared. It shall profit him nothing to have your blood upon his soul. That voice in you would never half so relentlessly have hounded him and his as it shall in me, if all else fails. It was an exulting thought. It calmed him. It soothed his grief. And he began very softly to pray and then his heart trembled as he considered that Philippe, a man of peace, almost a priest, an apostle of Christianity, had gone to his maker with the sin of anger on his soul. 
was horrible. Yet God would see the righteousness of that anger, and in no case, be man's interpretation of divinity what it might, could that one sin outweigh the loving good that Philippe had ever practised, the noble purity of his great heart. God, after all, reflected André-Louis, was not a grand seigneur. Chapter 5 The Lord of Gavriac For the second time that day, André-Louis set out for the chateau, walking briskly, and heeding not at all the curious eyes that followed him through the village, and the whisperings that marked his passage through the people, all agog by now with the day's event in which he had been an actor. He was ushered by Benoit, the elderly body-servant, rather grandiloquently called the Seneschal, into the ground-floor room known traditionally as the library. It still contained several shelves of neglected volumes, from which it derived its title, but implements of the chase, fowling-pieces, powder-horns, hunting-bags, sheath-knives, obtruded far more prominently than those of study. The furniture was massive, of oak richly carved, and belonging to another age. Great, massive oak beams crossed a rather lofty whitewashed ceiling. Here the squat Seigneur de Gavriac was restlessly pacing when André-Louis was introduced. He was already informed, as he announced at once, of what had taken place at the Breton Arme. Monsieur de Chabrian had just left him, and he confessed himself deeply grieved and deeply perplexed. The pity of it, he said, the pity of it. He bowed his enormous head. So estimable a young man, and so full of promise. Ah, this Latour d'Azir is a hard man, and he feels very strongly in these matters. He may be right, I don't know. I have never killed a man for holding different views from mine. In fact, I have never killed a man at all. It isn't in my nature. I shouldn't sleep of nights if I did. But men are differently made. The question, Monsieur my godfather, said André-Louis, is what is to be done. He was quite calm and self-possessed, but very white. Monsieur le Cadieu stared at him blankly out of his pale eyes. Why, what the devil is there to do? From what I am told, Villemorin went so far as to strike Monsieur le Marquis, under the very grossest provocation, which he himself provoked by his revolutionary language. The poor lad's head was full of this encyclopedist trash. It comes of too much reading. I have never set much store by books, André, and I have never known anything but trouble to come out of learning. It unsettles a man. It complicates his views of life, destroys the simplicity which makes for peace of mind and happiness. Let this miserable affair be a warning to you, André. You are yourself too prone to these new-fashioned speculations upon a different constitution of the social order. You see what comes of it. A fine, estimable young man, the only prop of his widowed mother, too, forgets himself, his position, his duty to that mother, everything, and goes and gets himself killed like this. It is infernally sad. 
On my soul it is sad. He produced a handkerchief and blew his nose with vehemence. André Louis felt a tightening of his heart, a lessening of the hopes, never too sanguine, which he had founded upon his godfather. Your criticisms, he said, are all for the conduct of the dead, and none for that of the murderer. It does not seem possible that you should be in sympathy with such a crime. Crime? shrilled Monsieur de Kercadieu. My God, boy, you are speaking of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir. I am, and of the abominable murder he has committed. Stop. Monsieur le Kercadieu was very emphatic. I cannot permit that you apply such terms to him. I cannot permit it. Monsieur le Marquis is my friend, and is likely very soon to stand in a still closer relationship. Notwithstanding this? asked André Louis. Monsieur le Carcadou was frankly impatient. Why, what has this to do with it? I may deplore it, but I have no right to condemn it. It is a common way of adjusting differences between gentlemen. You really believe that? What the devil do you imply, André? Should I say a thing that I don't believe? You begin to make me angry. Thou shalt not kill is the king's law as well as God's. You are determined to quarrel with me, I think. It was a duel. André Louis interrupted him. It is no more a duel than if it had been fought with pistols, of which only Monsieur le Marquis was loaded. He invited Philippe to discuss the matter further, with the deliberate intent of forcing a quarrel upon him and killing him. Be patient with me, Monsieur my godfather. I am not telling you of what I imagine, but what Monsieur le Marquis himself admitted to me. Dominated a little by the young man's earnestness, Monsieur de Kierkegaard's pale eyes fell away. He turned with a shrug, and sauntered over to the window. It would need a court of honour to decide such an issue, and we have no courts of honour, he said, but we have courts of justice. With returning testiness, the seigneur swung round to face him again. And what court of justice do you think would listen to such a plea as you appear to have in mind? There is the court of the king's lieutenant at Rennes. And do you think the king's lieutenant would listen to you? Not to me, perhaps, monsieur. But if you were to bring the plaint, I bring the plaint! Monsieur le Kierkegaard's pale eyes were wide with horror of the suggestion. The thing happened here on your domain. I? Bring a plaint against Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir? You are out of your senses, I think, or you are mad, as mad as that poor friend of yours who has come to this end through meddling in what did not concern him. The language he used here to Monsieur le Marquis on the score of Marbais was of the most offensive. Perhaps you didn't know that. It does not at all surprise me that the Marquis should have desired satisfaction. I see said André Louis, on a note of hopelessness. You see? What the devil do you see? But I shall have to depend upon myself alone. And what the devil do you propose to do, if you please? I shall go to Rennes, and lay the facts before the king's lieutenant. He'll be too busy to see you. And Monsieur de Carcadieu's mind swung a trifle inconsequently, as weak minds will. There is trouble enough in Rennes already— on the score of these crazy states-general, 
with which the wonderful Monsieur Necker is to repair the finances of the kingdom, as if a peddling Swiss bank clerk, who is also a damned Protestant, could succeed where such men as Cologne and Brienne have failed. Good afternoon, Monsieur my godfather, said André Louis. Where are you going? was the querulous demand. Home at present, to Rennes in the morning. Wait, boy, wait. The squat little man rolled forward, affectionate concern on his great, ugly face, and he set one of his podgy hands on his godson's shoulder. Now listen to me, André, he reasoned. This is sheer night errantry, moonshine, lunacy. You'll come to no good by it if you persist. You've read Don Quixote, and what happened to him when he went tilting against windmills. It's what will happen to you, neither more nor less. Leave things as they are, my boy. I wouldn't have a mischief happen to you. André Louis looked at him, smiling wanly. I swore an oath today, which it would damn my soul to break. You mean that you will go in spite of anything that I may say? Impetuous as he was inconsequent, Monsieur de Carcadou was bristling again. Very well, then, go. Go to the devil. I will begin with the king's lieutenant. And if you get into the trouble you are seeking, don't come whimpering to me for assistance. The seigneur stormed. He was very angry now. Since you choose to disobey me, you can break your empty head against the windmill and be damned to you. André-Louis bowed with a touch of irony, and reached the door. "'If the windmill should prove too formidable,' said he from the threshold, "'I may see what can be done with the wind. "'Good-bye, monsieur my godfather.' He was gone, and monsieur de Carcadieu was alone, purple in the face, puzzling out that last cryptic utterance, and not at all happy in his mind either on the score of his godson or of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir. He was disposed to be angry with them both. He found these headstrong, willful men who relentlessly followed their own impulses very disturbing and irritating. Himself, he loved his ease and to be at peace with his neighbours, and that seemed to him so obviously the supreme good of life that he was disposed to brand them as fools who troubled to seek other things. Chapter 6 The Windmill There was, between Nantes and Rennes, an established service of three stagecoaches weekly in each direction, which for a sum of twenty-four livres, roughly the equivalent of an English guinea, would carry you the seventy and odd miles of the journey in some fourteen hours, once a week, one of the diligences going in each direction would swerve aside from the high road to call at Gavriac, to bring and take letters, newspapers, and sometimes passengers. It was usually by this coach that André Louis came and went when the occasion offered. At present, however, he was too much in haste to lose a day awaiting the passing of that diligence. So it was on a horse, hired from the Breton arm, that he set out next morning and an hour's brisk ride under a grey, wintry sky, by half-ruined road through ten miles of flat, uninteresting country, 
brought him to the city of Rennes. He rode across the main bridge, over the Vilaine, and so into the upper and principal part of that important city of some thirty thousand souls, most of whom, he opined from the seething, clamant crowds that everywhere blocked his way, must on this day have taken to the streets. Clearly Philippe had not overstated the excitement prevailing there. He pushed on as best he could, and so came at last to the Place Royale, where he found the crowd to be most dense. From the plinth of the equestrian statue of Louis XV, a white-faced young man was excitedly addressing the multitude. His youth and dress proclaimed him the student, and a group of his fellows, acting as a guard of honour to him, kept the immediate precincts of the statue. Over the heads of the crowd, André-Louis caught a few of the phrases flung forth by that eager voice. It was the promise of the king. It is the king's authority they flout. They arrogate to themselves the whole sovereignty in Brittany. The king has dissolved them, these insolent nobles defying their sovereign and the people. Had he not known already, from what Philippe had told him of the events which had brought the third estate to the point of active revolt, those few phrases would fully have informed him. This popular display of temper was most opportune to his need, he thought, and in the hope that it might serve his turn, by disposing to reasonableness the mind of the king's lieutenant, he pushed on up the wide and well-paved Rue Royale, where the concourse of people began to diminish. He put up his hired horse at the Comte de Cerf, and set out again on foot to the Palais de Justice. There was a brawling mob by the framework of poles and scaffoldings about the building cathedral, upon which work had been commenced a year ago. But he did not pause to ascertain the particular cause of that gathering. He strode on, and thus came presently to the handsome Italianate palace that was one of the few public edifices that had survived the devastating fire of sixty years ago. He won through with difficulty to the great hall, known as the Salle des Parpadoux, where he was left to cool his heels for a full half-hour, after he had found an usher so condescending as to inform the god who presided over that shrine of justice, that a lawyer from Gavriac humbly begged an audience on an affair of gravity. That the god condescended to see him at all was probably due to the grave complexion of the hour. At long length he was escorted up the broad stone staircase, and ushered into a spacious, meagerly furnished ante-room, to make one of a waiting crowd of clients, mostly men. There he spent another half-hour, and employed the time in considering exactly what he should say. This consideration made him realize the weakness of the case he proposed to set before a man, whose views of law and morality were colored by his social rank. At last he was ushered through a narrow, but very massive and richly decorated door, into a fine, well-lighted room, furnished with enough gilt and satin, to have supplied the boudoir of a lady of fashion. It was a trivial setting for a king's lieutenant, but about the king's lieutenant there was, at least to ordinary eyes, nothing trivial. At the far end of the chamber, to the right of one of the tall windows that looked out over the inner court, before a goat-legged writing-table with Watteau panels, heavily encrusted with ormolu, sat that exalted being." Above a scarlet coat, with an order flaming on its breast, and a billow of lace in which diamonds sparkled like drops of water, 
sprouted the massive powdered head of Monsieur de Lédiguerre. It was thrown back to scowl upon this visitor with an expectant arrogance that made André-Louis wonder almost was a genuflection awaited from him. Perceiving a lean, lantern-jawed young man with straight, lank black hair in a caped riding-coat of brown cloth and yellow buckskin breeches, his knee-boots splashed with mud, the scowl upon that august visage deepened until it brought together the thick black eyebrows above the great hooked nose. You announce yourself as a lawyer of Gavriac with an important communication, he growled. It was a peremptory command to make this communication without wasting the valuable time of a king's lieutenant, of whose immense importance it conveyed something more than a hint. Monsieur de Lédiguerre accounted himself an imposing personality, and he had every reason to do so, for in his time he had seen many a poor devil scared out of all his senses by the thunder of his voice. He waited now to see the same thing happen to this youthful lawyer from Gavriac, but he waited in vain. André-Louis found him ridiculous. He knew pretentiousness for the mask of worthlessness and weakness, and here he beheld pretentiousness incarnate. It was to be read in that arrogant poise of the head, that scowling brow, the inflection of that reverberating voice, even more difficult than it is for a man to be a hero to his valet, who has witnessed the dispersal of the parts that make up the imposing whole, is it for a man to be a hero to the student of man who has witnessed the same in a different sense. André-Louis stood forward boldly, impudently, thought Monsieur de Lédiguerre. "'You are His Majesty's lieutenant, here in Brittany,' he said, and it almost seemed to be the august lord of life and death, that this fellow had the incredible effrontery to address him as one man speaking to another. "'You are the dispenser of the king's high justice in this province?' Surprise spread on that handsome sallow face, under the heavily powdered wig. Is your business concerned with this infernal insubordination of the canal? he asked. It is not, monsieur. The black eyebrows rose. Then what the devil do you mean by intruding upon me, at a time when all my attention is being claimed by the obvious urgency of this disgraceful affair? The affair that brings me is no less disgraceful, and no less urgent. It will have to wait, thundered the great man in a passion, and tossing back a cloud of lace from his hand, he reached for the little silver bell upon the table. A moment, monsieur. André-Louis' tone was peremptory. Monsieur de Lédiguerre checked in sheer amazement at its impudence. I can state it very briefly. Haven't I said already? And when you have heard it, "'André-Louis went on, relentlessly, interrupting the interruption. "'You will agree with me as to its character.' "'Monsieur de Lédiguerre considered him very sternly. "'What is your name?' he asked. "'André-Louis Moreau.' "'Well, André-Louis Moreau, if you can state your plea briefly, I will hear you. "'But I warn you that I shall be very angry.' "'if you fail to justify the impertinence of this insistence at so inopportune a moment.' 
You shall be the judge of that, monsieur, said André Louis, as he proceeded at once to state his case, beginning with the shooting of Marbe, and passing thence to the killing of Monsieur de Villemorin. But he withheld until the end the name of the great gentleman against whom he demanded justice, persuaded that did he introduce it earlier, he would not be allowed to proceed. He had a gift of oratory, of whose full powers he was himself hardly conscious yet, though destined very soon to become so. He told his story well, without exaggeration, yet with a force of simple appeal that was irresistible. Gradually the great man's face relaxed from its forbidding severity. Interest, warming almost to sympathy, came to be reflected on it. "'And who, sir, is the man you charge with this?' "'The Marquis de la Tour d'Azir.' The effect of that formidable name was immediate. Dismayed anger, and an arrogance more utter than before, took the place of the sympathy he had been betrayed into displaying. "'Who?' he shouted, and without waiting for an answer, "'Why, here's impudence!' he stormed on. "'To come before me with such a charge against a gentleman of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir's eminence? "'How dare you speak of him as a coward?' "'I speak of him as a murderer,' the young man corrected, "'and I demand justice against him.' "'You demand it, do you? My God! What next?' "'That is for you to say, monsieur.' It surprised the great gentleman into a more or less successful effort of self-control. "'Let me warn you,' said he acidly, "'that it is not wise to make wild accusations against a nobleman. "'That in itself is a punishable offence, as you may learn. "'Now listen to me. "'In this matter of Mabe,' "'assuming your statement of it to be exact. "'The gamekeeper may have exceeded his duty, "'but by so little that it is hardly worth comment. "'Consider, however, that in any case "'it is not a matter for the king's lieutenant "'or for any court, "'but the seigneurial court of Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir himself. "'It is before the magistrates of his own appointing.' that such a matter must be laid, since it is matter strictly concerning his own seigneurial jurisdiction. As a lawyer, you should not need to be told so much. As a lawyer, I am prepared to argue the point. But as a lawyer, I also realize that if that case were prosecuted, it could only end with the unjust punishment of a wretched gamekeeper, who did no more than carry out his orders, but who nonetheless would now be made a scapegoat, if scapegoat were necessary. I am not concerned to hang Benet on the gallows earned by Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir. Monsieur de Lediguier smote the table violently. My God! he cried out, to add more quietly, on a note of menace, You are singularly insolent, my man. That is not my intention, sir, I assure you. I am a lawyer pleading a case, the case of Monsieur de Villemorin. It is for his assassination that I have come to beg the king's justice. But you yourself have said that it was a duel, cried the lieutenant, between anger and bewilderment. I have said that it was made to appear a duel, 
there is a distinction, as I shall show, if you will condescend to hear me out. Take your own time, sir, said the ironical Monsieur de Lédiguerre, whose tenure of office had never yet held anything that remotely resembled this experience. André-Louis took him literally. I thank you, sir. He answered solemnly and submitted his argument. It can be shown that Monsieur de Vilmorin never practised fencing in all his life, and it is notorious that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir is an exceptional swordsman. Is it a duel, Monsieur, where one of the combatants alone is armed? For it amounts to that, on a comparison of their measures of respective skill. There has scarcely been a duel fought on which the same trumpery argument might not be advanced. But not always with equal justice and in one case at least, it was advanced successfully. Successfully? When was that? Ten years ago, in Dauphigny. I refer to the case of Monsieur de Gevre, a gentleman of that province, who forced a duel upon Monsieur de la Roche-Jeanine, and killed him. Monsieur de Jeanine was a member of a powerful family, which exerted itself to obtain justice. It put forward just such arguments as now obtain against Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir. As you will remember, the judges held that the provocation had proceeded of intent from Monsieur de Gevre. They found him guilty of premeditated murder, and he was hanged. Monsieur de Lédiguerre exploded yet again. "'Death of my life!' he cried. "'Have you the effrontery to suggest that Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir should be hanged? Have you?' But why not, monsieur, if it is the law? And there is precedent for it, as I have shown you. And if it can be established that what I state is the truth, as established it can be without difficulty, do you ask me why not? Have you the temerity to ask me that? I have, monsieur. Can you answer me? If you cannot, monsieur, I shall understand that whilst it is possible for a powerful family like that of La Roche-Janine, to set the law in motion, the law must remain inert for the obscure and uninfluential, however brutally wronged by a great nobleman. Monsieur de Lédiguerre perceived that, in argument, he would accomplish nothing against this impassive, resolute young man. The menace of him grew more fierce. "'I should advise you to take yourself off at once.' and to be thankful for the opportunity to depart unscathed. I am then to understand, monsieur, that there will be no inquiry into this case, that nothing that I can say will move you. You are to understand that if you are still there in two minutes, it will be very much the worse for you. And monsieur de Lédiguerre tinkled the silver handbell upon his table. I have informed you, monsieur, that a duel, so-called, has been fought, and a man killed. It seems that I must remind you, the administrator of the king's justice, that duels are against the law, and that it is your duty to hold an inquiry. I come as the legal representative of the bereaved mother of Monsieur de Villemorin to demand of you the inquiry that is due." The door behind André-Louis opened softly. Monsieur de Lédiguerre, pale with anger, contained himself with difficulty. "'You seek to compel us, do you, 
You impudent rascal, he growled. You think the king's justice is to be driven headlong by the voice of an impudent roturier? I marvel at my own patience with you. But I give you a last warning, master lawyer. Keep a closer guard over that insolent tongue of yours, or you will have cause very bitterly to regret its glibness. He waved a jeweled, contemptuous hand, and spoke to the usher standing behind André. To the door, he said shortly. André Louis hesitated a second. Then, with a shrug, he turned. This was the windmill indeed, and he a poor knight of rueful countenance. To attack it at closer quarters would mean being dashed to pieces, yet on the threshold he turned again. Monsieur de Lediguier, said he, may I recite to you an interesting fact in natural history? The tiger is a great lord in the jungle, and was for centuries the terror of lesser beasts, including the wolf. The wolf, himself a hunter, wearied of being hunted. He took to associating with other wolves, and then the wolves, driven to form packs for self-protection, discovered the power of the pack, and took to hunting the tiger, with disastrous results to him. You should study Buffon, Monsieur de Lediguier. I have studied a buffoon this morning, I think, was the punning sneer with which Monsieur de Lediguier replied. But that he conceived himself witty, it is probable he would not have condescended to reply at all. I don't understand you, he added. But you will, Monsieur de Lediguier, you will, said André Louis, and so departed. Chapter 7 the wind. He had broken his futile lance with the windmill. The image suggested by Monsieur de Carcadou persisted in his mind, and it was, he perceived, by sheer good fortune that he had escaped without hurt. There remained the wind itself, the whirlwind, and the events in Rennes, reflex of the graver events in Nantes, had set that wind blowing in his favour. He set out briskly to retrace his steps toward the Place Royale, where the gathering of the populace was greatest, where, as he judged, lay the heart and brain of this commotion that was exciting the city. But the commotion that he had left there was nothing to the commotion which he found on his return. Then there had been a comparative hush to listen to the voice of a speaker who denounced the first and second estates from the pedestal of the statue of Louis Cannes. Now the air was vibrant with the voice of the multitude itself, raised in anger. Here and there men were fighting with canes and fists, everywhere a fierce excitement raged, and the gendarmes sent thither by the king's lieutenant to restore and maintain order were so much helpless flotsam in that tempestuous human ocean. There were cries of, To the palais! To the palais! Down with the assassins! Down with the nobles! To the palais! An artisan, who stood shoulder to shoulder with him in the press, enlightened André-Louis on the score of the increased excitement. They've shot him dead. 
His body is lying there, where it fell at the foot of the statue. There was another student killed not an hour ago, over there by the cathedral works. Parti. If they can't prevail in one way, they'll prevail in another. The man was fiercely emphatic. They'll stop at nothing. If they can't overawe us by God, they'll assassinate us. They are determined to conduct these states of Brittany in their own way. No interests but their own shall be considered. André-Louis left him still talking, and clove himself away through that human press. At the statue's base he came upon a little cluster of students about the body of the murdered lad, all stricken with fear and helplessness. "'You here, Moreau?' said a voice. He looked round to find himself confronted by a slight, swarthy man of little more than thirty, firm of mouth and impertinent of nose, who considered him with disapproval.' It was Le Chapelier, a lawyer of Rennes, a prominent member of the literary chamber of that city, a forceful man, fertile in revolutionary ideas, and of an exceptional gift of eloquence. Ah, it is you, Chapelier. Why don't you speak to them? Why don't you tell them what to do? Up with you, man! And he pointed to the plinth. Le Chapelier's dark, restless eyes searched the other's impassive face, for some trace of the irony he suspected. They were as wide asunder as the Poles, these two, in their political views, and mistrusted as André-Louis was by his colleagues of the literary chamber of Rennes, he was by none mistrusted so thoroughly as by this vigorous Republican. Indeed, had Le Chapelier been able to prevail against the influence of the seminarist Villemorin, André-Louis would long since have found himself excluded from that assembly of the intellectual youth of Rennes which he exasperated by his eternal mockery of their ideals. So now Le Chapelier suspected mockery in that invitation, suspected it even when he failed to find traces of it on André-Louis's face, for he had learnt by experience that it was a face not often to be trusted for an indication of the real thoughts that moved behind it. "'Your notions and mine on that score can hardly coincide,' said he. "'Can there be two opinions?' quoth André-Louis. "'There are usually two opinions whenever you and I are together, Moreau. "'More than ever now that you are the appointed delegate of a nobleman. "'You see what your friends have done. "'No doubt you approve their methods.' "'He was coldly hostile. "'André-Louis looked at him without surprise. "'So invariably opposed to each other in academic debates, "'how should Le Chapelier suspect his present intentions?' "'If you won't tell them what is to be done, I will,' said he. "'Nom de Dieu! "'If you want to invite a bullet from the other side, I shall not hinder you. "'It may help to square the account.' "'Scarcely were the words out than he repented them. "'For as if in answer to that challenge, "'André-Louis sprang up on to the plinth. "'Alarmed now, for he could only suppose it to be "'André-Louis's intention to speak on behalf of privilege, "'of which he was a publicly appointed representative,' Le Chapelier clutched him by the leg to pull him down again. "'Oh, that, no!' he was shouting. "'Come down, you fool! Do you think we will let you ruin everything by your clowning? Come down!' André-Louis, maintaining his position by clutching one of the legs of the bronze horse, flung his voice like a bugle-note over the heads of that seething mob. "'Citizens of Rennes, the motherland is in danger!' The effect was electric. A stir ran like a ripple over water, across that froth of upturned human faces, 
and completest silence followed. In that great silence, they looked at this slim young man, hatless, long wisps of his black hair fluttering in the breeze, his neckcloth in disorder, his face white, his eyes on fire. André-Louis felt a sudden surge of exultation as he realized by instinct that at one grip he had seized that crowd, and that he held it fast in the spell of his cry and his audacity. Even Le Chapelier, though still clinging to his ankle, had ceased to tug. The reformer, though unshaken in his assumption of André-Louis' intentions, was for a moment bewildered by the first note of his appeal. And then, slowly, impressively, in a voice that travelled clear to the ends of the square, the young lawyer of Gavriac began to speak, shuddering in horror of the vile deed here perpetrated. My voice demands to be heard by you. You have seen murder done under your eyes, the murder of one who nobly, without any thought of self, gave voice to the wrongs by which we are all oppressed. Fearing that voice, shunning the truth as foul things shun the light, our oppressors sent their agents to silence him in death. Le Chapelier released at last his hold of André-Louis' ankle, staring up at him the while in sheer amazement. It seemed that the fellow was in earnest, serious for once, and for once on the right side. What had come to him? Of assassins, what shall you look for but assassination? I have a tale to tell, which will show that this is no new thing that you have witnessed here today. It will reveal to you the forces with which you have to deal. Yesterday, there was an interruption, a voice in the crowd, some twenty paces, perhaps, was raised to shout, Yet another of them! Immediately after the voice came a pistol shot, and a bullet flattened itself against the bronze figure just behind André-Louis. Instantly there was turmoil in the crowd, most intense about the spot whence the shot had been fired. The assailant was one of a considerable group of the opposition, a group that found itself at once beset on every side, and hard put to it to defend him. From the foot of the plinth, rang the voice of the students making chorus to Le Chapelier, who was bidding André-Louis to seek shelter. Come down, come down at once, they'll murder you, as they murdered La Riviere. Let them! He flung wide his arms, in a gesture supremely theatrical, and laughed. I stand here at their mercy. Let them, if they will, add mine to the blood that will presently rise up to choke them. Let them assassinate me. It is a trade they understand. But until they do so, they shall not prevent me from speaking to you, from telling you what is to be looked for in them. And again he laughed, not merely in exultation, as they supposed, who watched him from below, but also in amusement. And his amusement had two sources. One was to discover how glibly he uttered the phrases proper to whip up the emotions of a crowd. The other was in the remembrance of how the crafty Cardinal de Retz, for the purpose of inflaming popular sympathy on his behalf, had been in the habit of hiring fellows to fire upon his carriage. He was in just such a case as that arch-politician. True, he had not hired the fellow to fire that pistol-shot, but he was none the less obliged to him, 
and ready to derive the fullest advantage from the act. The group that sought to protect that man was battling on, seeking to hew a way out of that angry, heaving press. Let them go, André Louis called down. What matters one assassin, more or less? Let them go, and listen to me, my countrymen. And presently, when some measure of order was restored, he began his tale. In simple language now, yet with a vehemence and directness that drove home every point, he tore their hearts with the story of yesterday's happenings at Gavriac. He drew tears from them with the pathos of his picture of the bereaved widow Mabe and her three starving, destitute children. Orphaned to avenge the death of a pheasant! And the bereaved mother of that Monsieur de Villemorin, a student of Rennes, known here to many of them, who had met his death in a noble endeavour to champion the cause of an assurient member of their afflicted order. The Marquis de la Tour d'Azir said of him that he had too dangerous a gift of eloquence. It was to silence his brave voice that he killed him. But he has failed of his object, for I, poor Philippe de Villemorin's friend, have assumed the mantle of his apostleship, and I speak to you with his voice today. It was a statement that helped Le Chapelier at last to understand, at least in part, this bewildering change in André Louis, which rendered him faithless to the side that employed him. I am not here, continued André Louis, merely to demand at your hands vengeance upon Philippe de Villemorin's murderers. I am here to tell you the things he would today have told you had he lived. So far at least he was frank. But he did not add that they were things he did not himself believe, things that he accounted the cant by which an ambitious bourgeoisie, speaking through the mouths of the lawyers, who were its articulate part, sought to overthrow to its own advantage the present state of things. He left his audience in the natural belief that the views he expressed were the views he held. And now, in a terrible voice, with an eloquence that amazed himself, he denounced the inertia of the royal justice, where the great are the offenders. It was with bitter sarcasm that he spoke of their king's lieutenant, Monsieur Lediguiere. Do you wonder, he asked them, that Monsieur de Lediguiere should administer the law so that it shall ever be favourable to our great nobles? Would it be just, would it be reasonable, that he should otherwise administer it? He paused dramatically to let his sarcasm sink in. It had the effect of reawakening Le Chapelier's doubts, and checking his dawning conviction in André Louis' sincerity. Whither was he going now? He was not left long in doubt. Proceeding, André Louis spoke as he conceived that Philippe de Villemorin would have spoken. He had so often argued with him, so often attended the discussions of the literary chamber, that he had all the rant of the reformers, that was yet true in substance, at his fingers' ends. Consider, after all, the composition of this France of ours. A million of its inhabitants are members of the privileged classes. They compose France. They are France. For surely you cannot suppose the remainder to be anything that matters. It cannot be pretended 
that twenty-four million souls are of any account, that they can be representative of this great nation, or that they can exist for any purpose but that of servitude to the million elect. Bitter laughter shook them now, as he desired it should. Seeing their privileges in danger of invasion by these twenty-four millions, mostly Kanai, possibly created by God, it is true, but clearly so created to be the slaves of privilege. Does it surprise you that the dispensing of royal justice should be placed in the stout hands of these Lediguiers, men without brains to think or hearts to be touched? Consider what it is that must be defended against the assault of us others, Canaille. Consider a few of these feudal rights that are in danger of being swept away, should the privileged yield even to the commands of their sovereign, and admit the third estate to an equal vote with themselves. What would become of the right of terrage on the land, of passier on the fruit trees, of carpeaux on the vines? What are the corvées, by which they command forced labour, of the ban de vendage, which gives them the first vintage, the bon vin, which enables them to control, to their own advantage, the sale of wine? What of their right of grinding the last leard of taxation out of the people to maintain their own opulent estate, the sans, the loivant, which absorb a fifth of the value of the land, the blairet, which must be paid before herds can feed on communal lands, the pulverage, to indemnify them for the dust raised on their roads by the herds that go to market, the sixtulage on everything offered for sale in the public markets, the etalonage, and all the rest. What of their rights over men and animals for field labour, of ferries over rivers, and of bridges over streams, of sinking wells, of warren, of dovecot, and of fire? which last yields them a tax on every peasant hearth. What of their exclusive rights of fishing and of hunting, the violation of which is ranked as almost a capital offence? And what of other rights, unspeakable, abominable, over the lives and bodies of their people, rights which, if rarely exercised, have never been rescinded? To this day, if a noble returning from the hunt were to slay two of his serfs to bathe and refresh his feet in their blood, he could still claim in his sufficient defence that it was his absolute feudal right to do so. Roughshod, these million privileged ride over the souls and bodies of twenty-four million contemptible canai, existing but for their own pleasure. Woe betide him who so much as raises his voice in protest in the name of humanity against an excess of these already excessive abuses. I have told you of one remorselessly slain in cold blood for doing no more than that. Your own eyes have witnessed the assassination of another here upon this plinth, of yet another over there by the cathedral works, and the attempt upon my own life. Between them and the justice due to them in such cases, stand these Lediguiers, these king's lieutenants, not instruments of justice, but walls erected for the shelter of privilege and abuse 
whenever it exceeds its grotesquely excessive rights. Do you wonder that they will not yield an inch, that they will resist the election of a third estate with the voting power to sweep all these privileges away, to compel the privileged to submit themselves to a just equality in the eyes of the law with the meanest of the canai they trample underfoot, to provide that the monies necessary to save this state from the bankruptcy into which they have all but plunged it shall be raised by taxation to be borne by themselves in the same proportion as by others. Sooner than yields are so much, they prefer to resist even the royal command. A phrase occurred to him, used yesterday by Villemorin, a phrase to which he had refused to attach importance when uttered then. He used it now. In doing this, they are striking at the very foundations of the throne. These fools do not perceive that if the throne falls over, it is they who stand nearest to it who will be crushed. A terrific roar acclaimed that statement, tense and quivering with the excitement that was flowing through him, and from him out into that great audience he stood a moment smiling ironically. Then he waved them into silence, and saw by their ready obedience how completely he possessed them. For in the voice with which he spoke each now recognized the voice of himself, giving at last expression to the thoughts that for months and years had been inarticulately stirring in each simple mind. Presently he resumed, speaking more quietly, that ironic smile about the corner of his mouth growing more marked. In taking my leave of Monsieur de Lediguier, I gave him warning out of a page of natural history. I told him that when the wolves, roaming singly through the jungle, were weary of being hunted by the tiger, they banded themselves into packs, and went to hunting the tiger in their turn. Monsieur de Lediguier contemptuously answered that he did not understand me. But your wits are better than his. You understand me, I think. Don't you? Again a great roar, mingled now with some approving laughter, was his answer. He had wrought them up to a pitch of dangerous passion, and they were ripe for any violence to which he urged them. If he had failed with the windmill, at least he was now master of the wind. To the palais! they shouted, waving their hands, brandishing canes, and, here and there, even a sword. To the palais! Down with Monsieur de Lediguier! Death to the king's lieutenant! He was master of the wind indeed. His dangerous gift of oratory, a gift nowhere more powerful than in France, since nowhere else are men's emotions so quick to respond to the appeal of eloquence, had given him this mastery. At his bidding now, the gale would sweep away the windmill against which he had flung himself in vain. But that, as he straightforwardly revealed it, was no part of his intent. Ah, wait! he bade them. Is this miserable instrument of a corrupt system worth the attention of your noble indignation? He hoped his words would be reported to Monsieur de Lesdiguières. He thought it would be good for the soul of Monsieur de Lesdiguières 
to hear the undiluted truth about himself for once. It is the system itself you must attack and overthrow, not a mere instrument, a miserable painted lath such as this, and precipitancy will spoil everything, above all my children, no violence. My children, could his godfather have heard him? You have seen often already the result of premature violence elsewhere in Brittany, and you have heard of it elsewhere in France. Violence on your part will call for violence on theirs. They will welcome the chance to assert their mastery by a firmer grip than heretofore. The military will be sent for. You will be faced by the bayonets of mercenaries. Do not provoke that, I implore you. Do not put it into their power. Do not afford them the pretext they would welcome to crush you down into the mud of your own blood. Out of the silence into which they had fallen, anew broke now the cry of, What else, then? What else? I will tell you, he answered them. The wealth and strength of Brittany lies in Nantes, a bourgeois city, one of the most prosperous in this realm, rendered so by the energy of the bourgeoisie and the toil of the people. It was in Nantes that this movement had its beginning, and as a result of it the king issued his order dissolving the states as now constituted, an order which those who base their power on privilege and abuse did not hesitate to thwart. Let Nantes be informed of the precise situation, and nothing be done here until Nantes shall have given us the lead. She has the power, which we in Rennes have not, to make her will prevail, as we have seen already. Let her exert that power once more, and until she does so, do you keep the peace in Rennes. Thus shall you triumph. Thus shall the outrages that are being perpetrated under your eyes be fully and finally avenged. As abruptly as he had leapt upon the plinth, did he now leap down from it. He had finished. He had said all, perhaps more than all, that could have been said by the dead friend with whose voice he spoke. But it was not their will that he should thus extinguish himself. The thunder of their acclamations rose deafeningly upon the air. He had played upon their emotions, each in turn, as a skilful harpist plays upon the strings of his instrument, and they were vibrant with the passions he had aroused, and the high note of hope on which he had brought his symphony to a close. A dozen students caught him as he leapt down, and swung him to their shoulders, where again he came within view of all the acclaiming crowd. The delicate Le Chapelier pressed alongside of him, with flushed face and shining eyes, "'My lad,' he said to him, "'you have kindled a fire to-day "'that will sweep the face of France in a blaze of liberty.' "'And then to the students he issued a sharp command, "'To the literary chamber, at once! "'We must concert measures upon the instant. "'A delegate must be dispatched to Nantes forthwith "'to convey to our friends there "'the message of the people of Rennes.' "'The crowd fell back, opening a lane,' through which the students bore the hero of the hour. Waving his hands to them, he called upon them to disperse to their homes, and await there in patience what must follow very soon. "'You have endured for centuries, with a fortitude that is a pattern to the world,' he flattered them. "'Endure a little longer yet. The end, my friends, is well in sight at last.' 
they carried him out of the square and up the Rue Royale to an old house, one of the few old houses surviving in that city, that had arisen from its ashes, where, in an upper chamber, lighted by diamond-shaped panes of yellow glass, the literary chamber usually held its meetings. Thither, in his wake, the members of that chamber came hurrying, summoned by the messages that Le Chapelier had issued during their progress. Behind closed doors, a flushed and excited group of some fifty men, the majority of whom were young, ardent, and afire with the illusion of liberty, hailed André Louis as the strayed sheep who had returned to the fold, and smothered him in congratulations and thanks. Then they settled down to deliberate upon immediate measures, whilst the doors below were kept by a guard of honour that had improvised itself from the masses. And very necessary was this, for no sooner had the chamber assembled than the house was assailed by the gendarmerie of Monsieur de Lediguier, dispatched in haste to arrest the firebrand who was inciting the people of Rennes to sedition. The force consisted of fifty men. Five hundred would have been too few. The mob broke their carbines, broke some of their heads, and would indeed have torn them into pieces had they not beaten a timely and well-advised retreat before a form of horseplay to which they were not at all accustomed. And whilst that was taking place in the street below, in the room above stairs, the eloquent Le Chapelier was addressing his colleagues of the literary chamber. Here, with no bullets to fear, and no one to report his words to the authorities, Le Chapelier could permit his oratory a full, unintimidated flow. And that considerable oratory was as direct and brutal as the man himself was delicate and elegant. He praised the vigour and the greatness of the speech they had heard from their colleague Moreau. Above all, he praised its wisdom. Moreau's words had come as a surprise to them. Hitherto, they had never known him as other than a bitter critic of their projects of reform and regeneration. And quite lately, they had heard, not without misgivings, of his appointment as delegate for a nobleman in the States of Brittany but they held the explanation of his conversion. The murder of their dear colleague Villemorin had produced this change. In that brutal deed, Moreau had beheld at last, in true proportions, the workings of that evil spirit which they were vowed to exorcise from France. And today he had proven himself the stoutest apostle among them of the new faith. He had pointed out to them the only sane and useful course. The illustration he had borrowed from natural history was most apt. Above all, let them pack like the wolves, and to ensure this uniformity of action in the people of all Brittany, let a delegate at once be sent to Nantes, which had already proved itself the real seat of Brittany's power. It but remained to appoint that delegate, and Le Chapelier invited them to elect him. André-Louis, on a bench near the window, a prey now to some measure of reaction, listened in bewilderment to that flood of eloquence. As the applause died down, he heard a voice exclaiming, "'I propose to you that we appoint our leader here, Le Chapelier, to be that delegate.' Le Chapelier reared his elegantly dressed head, which had been bowed in thought, and it was seen that his countenance was pale." Nervously he fingered a gold spyglass. "'My friends,' he said slowly, "'I am 
deeply sensible of the honour that you do me. But in accepting it, I should be usurping an honour that rightly belongs elsewhere. Who could represent us better? Who more deserving to be our representative, to speak to our friends of Nantes with the voice of Rennes, than the champion who once already today has so incomparably given utterance to the voice of this great city? Confer this honour of being your spokesman where it belongs, upon André-Louis Moreau. Rising in response to the storm of applause that greeted the proposal, André-Louis bowed and forthwith yielded. Be it so, he said simply. It is perhaps fitting that I should carry out what I have begun, though I too am of the opinion that Le Chapelier would have been a worthier representative. I will set out tonight. He will set out at once, my lad, Le Chapelier informed him, and now revealed what an uncharitable mind might account the true source of his generosity. It is not safe after what has happened for you to linger an hour in Rennes, and you must go secretly. Let none of you allow it to be known that he is gone. I would not have you come to harm over this, André-Louis, but you must see the risks you run, and if you are to be spared to help in this work of salvation to our afflicted motherland, you must use caution, move secretly, veil your identity even, or else Monsieur de Lediguiere will have you laid by the heels, and it will be good night for you. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Scaramouche, Part 2 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. If you have enjoyed this book, and especially if the pandemic is really wearing on you, feel free to download some of our free audiobooks at classictalesaudiobooks.com. Please tell your friends and family or anyone who would enjoy a good audiobook during this difficult time. There's a lot of material we're giving away for free, and you're welcome to it. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music